much, Patrick, for uh, for joining us on this podcast. And when do they do people get to sit down and have a conversation with uh, Dr. Byrne? You know, especially the younger folks who are trying to find their way. So, I want to just I want to just talk a little bit about first before we get in. I'm going to talk to you about your family and all that stuff, but I just want to talk about your you know the 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 big job you have right now because that's extraordinary. And I, I want to just tell you you know as I understand it, right? So the Cleveland Clinic Foundation has now decided to merge the institute, which head and neck includes otolaryngology and dental with plastic, orthopedic, uh, urology, ophthalmology, endocrine, breast surgery into one giant new surgical subspecialty institute. And the plan is to oversee and coordinate these specialties across the Cleveland Clinic Foundation, including Ohio, Florida, now in London, which is right across from Buckingham Palace in Abu Dhabi. So uh, and you've been named the uh, inaugural chief of this new institute, and it's a massive job. So I got to congratulate you. I mean, it's extraordinary. I don't know that I've ever known anyone that's, uh, you know, climbed to this high of a level in academics. Um, so congratulations. I'm sure you're, I mean, I'm sure you're a little nervous about it too, especially trying to manage a, you know, you also have the aesthetic center that's being op- opening up and your two companies you're working on. I mean, and you know, I'm sure your wife has got to be a saint. <laughs> you nailed that last one for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm a little oversubscribed. Uh, and uh, the, you know, I started these a couple of companies several years ago when I thought I'd be probably pivoting away from my academic practice some uh, because I found entrepreneurship so interesting. It's one of the reasons I've looked up to you for so long and I've listened to a lot of your content over the years. You know, I think we share sort of an interest in running, a, you know, a, a business that makes a difference in the world and is sustainable. Um, but, you know, I, I did not expect this uh, big opportunity at Cleveland Clinic. It's it's a really interesting challenge. And what the our senior leadership wants to do is to drive uh, quality and the experience and the outcomes across this ever-growing portfolio of Cleveland Clinic sites, which includes London, as you said, and Abu Dhabi and several hospitals in Florida. And the question is, how do we do with that as surgeons, right? And and uh, I find it a super interesting challenge to take on. And um, but for sure, I you know I we'll figure it out. And I, I don't know how we're going to do it yet. It's a it's a big group of people, but but lots of great people here who are, I think are excited to um, kind of innovate and and grow and and shake things up on, on how we how we provide care for the surgical specialists. Yeah. Well, I, I you know I will tell you. Having, you know, we were always the underdogs in our, our specialty. And so to have someone in you in this position, we're immensely proud of what you've accomplished and what this does politically for, you know, facial plastic surgery. Um, I think it's a, an extraordinary opportunity. I, I know you'll do, you know, do well, uh, do extraordinarily well with it. And, um, you know, I think it's really cool to to work with. You know, I had a buddy, my a number of my friends who run public companies, and and I looked at their leadership team, and I always thought to myself, gosh, you know, it, how cool it would be to work with that many really driven, smart people, and you know, and and so it must be pretty cool for you now to get to you know to work with some really talented people. Totally agree. Like several of these institute chairs are world class at in their fields. They're world class leaders. They've developed. You know, you look at some of the different groups like the ophthalmology group and the urology group and the orthopedics group, all of them plastics at, at, at um, Cleveland Clinic. And these are amazing people. So, you know, I see it as an incredible opportunity for me to learn and 
and it's a team thing, right? Like I, I see this entire thing as let's figure out how to organize our care in a way that we can be sustainable and grow over time. That's really a need, especially today in healthcare. You know, there's a lot of challenges, a lot of headwinds, uh, but do so in a way that drives forward innovation, uh, education, research, the whole tripartite mission, you know, and, and to learn from all these people surrounded by, you're absolutely right. I think that's the funnest thing of my job is just all the amazing people I get to learn from. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I don't often feel like the smartest guy in the room, but hopefully I can, you know, learn from others and, and build good teams and, and we can build stuff together. No, the smartest guy is often the guy who's listening the most, you know, I mean, there's an awful lot to learn from, from smart people and ego has no role and the best leaders are, uh, are really good listeners and they take genuine interest in people around them, which I, you know, it took me years to figure that out. Um, you feel like you're the only person in the room when you, you know, when you're talking to someone like that really gets it. Where did you grow up? I grew up in California. Yeah. So I was a California kid the whole way. And uh, actually, when I uh, developed my rank list for otolaryngology programs, I interviewed across the country, but I was so biased to California that I only ranked programs where I could see the Pacific Ocean from the top floor of the hospital. It was ridiculous in retrospect, but you know, I was a beach guy. I love, I love that culture in, in, in California. But uh, thankfully, I, I spread my wings a little bit and started appreciating seasons, which you know was a big, big sell for me when I did my fellowship in Minnesota. I love seasons. Still do. Yeah. Where did you do your undergrad? So I went to a very small school. I, I was not. I, I came from a small town called Salinas. It's a, it's a farming community, really. Uh, uh, it had maybe seventy thousand people when I was there. So not, you know, tiny. But and then uh, and. I went to a very small school called California Lutheran University, and I went there because all I really cared about at that age was sports, not academics. And I had, um, I actually played one year as a walk-on at a D1 soccer program at Loyola Marymount, but I didn't get to play. But I had a, a track scholarship offer at this little school in Thousand Oaks, California, so I ran track and cross country for my next three years. And uh, we didn't even have a pre-med program there. Actually, it's a, it's a, it's a great little school, but it's um, you know, it's a little out of the, out of the norm, I think for a pre-med program. So how'd you end up at Hopkins? So uh, long story short is did my fellow residency in UC San Diego and then did fellowship in facial plastic and reconstructive surgery in Minnesota with Peter Hildre, as you know, and several other great people. My, my, my last fellow just joined Peter, uh, ah. uh, Jenna Van Beck. She is terrific. And um, I'm excited for her. I'm excited for him. I think it's a great opportunity but anyway, so after you feel, and Peter, you know, again, that's, that's also a very well-respected fellowship. Uh, Jennifer's going to have a great time, obviously uh, amazing fellowship and he's an amazing guy, just spectacular experience. So, so I was in Minnesota and it was really, and that was the only fellowship program outside of California I even applied to because it just seemed so perfect for my interest at the time. You know, we did cleft lip and palate surgery with Jim Sidman and flaps and all kinds of aesthetics with Peter and, and uh, I had a choice to go back to California uh, and uh, had several, you know, good job offers there and, you know, got this pretty late uh, conversation with Charlie Cummings at, at um, Hopkins. Uh, and it was really a, a flyer, man. Like it, it was, um, I would be the only guy and, and the residency was actually on probation for insufficient at the time for insufficient facial plastics, you know, experience. And they're really struggling. They had trouble filling the role, frankly. Um, and a lot of people encouraged me not to go because they said, you know, that's a terrible place to do facial plastics. And, um, but I, I saw it different. I, I thought it would be a great place to build a program. And, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you had a nice niche there. It happens. 
It was great. You know, we, we had amazing. So we, well, we did everything. So the cool thing is, you know, first myself and Kofi Bohane joined Lisa Ishii, then Sean Desai. We just incrementally, all great people. Oh my God. So lucky. Uh, and we did all, so we opened an aesthetic center and then opened a new one after that. We did microvascular and reanimation. And I, I helped open up a cleft lip and palate program in greater Baltimore that still is going strong to this day. And um, so we did the full gamut and that was always our goal to, to represent the entire subspecialty and train people who could kind of do anything, you know, flaps or reanimation or Mohs or revision rhinoplasty. And of course, for the rhinoplasty side, Ira Papel is a big part you know, he's in private practice, but he's always the co-director of our fellowship program. So they got this phenomenal experience with him and Theta Contis, who are both amazing. So, I mean, I, I've, I felt really proud of the group just to be a part of it. You know, it's still obviously still a great fellowship program with all those people. Yeah, I, I remember the first time. Um, actually, I got to know you a little bit when you got on, you know, when you were on the board. Um, and I always was, uh, I always really appreciated your voice of reason and your thoughtful, calm consideration for things that were going on, but you always, you always really kind of dug to get to the bottom of it. And then I heard you were, you know, you're doing your MBA, um, you know, you're going to Wharton. Um, what was that decision like? I mean, you, you know, I mean, you brought, your wife probably wanted to choke you at that point. <laughs> My wife has wanted to choke me possibly for 20 years. Uh, <laughs> Well, that, that time when you were the president, you know, um, you did a lot of, you did a lot for the academy and, and it, it, I noticed that a lot of us did that you were going to go in and do what's right for the academy, even if it meant, you know, pissing um, off. Of yeah, pissing <laughs> some people off and rolling up your sleeve yourself. You rolled up your sleeves. I remember you spent time at the offices kind of digging through records and, um, that really was kind of amazing for me to watch because I felt like, gosh, that's how a president should be of our academy. And, um, and yeah, so I was 10 years into my practice. It was not around that time actually. And, and I was always like thinking up ideas for new businesses and products. And then I was really involved with Hopkins International for a while. I was one of their medical directors for about 10 years. So I oversaw a hospital in Panama for many years and helped them get joint commission accredited. And then I was assigned to a medical center in Tokyo and we helped them get Joint Commission accredited. That was all through Johns Hopkins. So I just found a lot of the other things out of direct patient care interesting. I never lost my passion for patient care. I still, it's my favorite, you know, time of the week when I'm in the OR. But, but I just thought, gosh, I should probably learn because I felt like I didn't know enough, you know, and I felt a little insecure in my own sort of business knowledge, and and so started looking at MBA programs. And and the only one that was really interested with, to me was uh, Wharton, but. You know, it was a big discussion with my wife, as you can imagine. We had three little kids at the time. We had our fourth kid while I was a student there. Uh, and, you know, I was doing like 12, 13,000 RVUs and flaps left and right and all kinds of aesthetic stuff. And I was just a crazy man. So it was a big decision um, that we didn't take lightly. But in the end, you know, decided to go for it. And it was, it was amazing. Ed. Like, I learned so much and I loved it. And I just soaked up the content. I remember talking to you a little bit at the time through the board. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm secretly jealous, I, I must oh, say. Because I, I um, uh, RPI, which is a local engineering uh, school, yeah. had executive MBA program, which I got accepted to around 2003. And at that point, my family, um, you know, it was every other Thursday, Friday, me, Friday, Saturday. And I came, I came this close and I just decided, I talked to enough people and I guess, you know, I talked to enough people that said, 
you know, with where you're at right now, it probably doesn't make sense. Um, I mean, this isn't about me, but I, you know, I, I read incessantly about business and, you know, but it's the people you meet and again, Wharton or HBS. Um, so I really thought about it and decided that it just wasn't ideal for my family, but to this day, if I had to do it over, you know, I, I would have done it before I got so busy with everything else. I still, so I, I, I always found that was a really, um, you know, a fascinating decision. Did you do it because you thought like, you know, I think you and I spoke briefly about this in the academic world. Actually, one of the things I wrote when I, in one of my, um, monthly addresses that we really, if we want to see, you know, I was, I went through the whole, did you ever read the book, America's Bitter Pill? Uh, by no, Stephen. I know, of, I know of it, but I have not read it. That's extraordinary. It's, it's the accounts of what happened to the Affordable Care because I didn't know what happened. I don't think any of us did. And I read and it was basically everything that happened um, at the time. But when I, after I got done reading it, I said, well, we need more MD leaders. We need more MDs to get, the, to get their MBA because there's something about going through what we go through. You know, it's like when you get on the phone with a medical director and you get off and your, your team is like, how come that like took you one second? Because you, there's something that we go through together to take care of patients and, and there's a bond, a rite of passage, whatever you want to call it. And I really felt, and that's why I commend you that we need more, we need more physician MBAs who really care about not just the patients, but the doctors who actually care about the patients and not just spreadsheets and, you know, and bottom lines and those type of things. So did you think, because that was where I was going with my question, did you feel it would help you further advance your, you know, uh, academic career, which obviously you've had an amazing career, or because I know you also had this entrepreneurial kind of spirit, like you were thinking, you know, as in you've got two companies you're working on right now. Or were you thinking maybe I'm going to leave and go do something? More the latter. That's what's so interesting. And I think if I had anticipated applying, you know, my energies towards academic, my academic career, um, I probably would have stayed and gone to the Cary Business School in Baltimore because it'd be a lot more convenient. But I always envisioned branching out into private ventures. Uh, and as soon as I graduated, I started, you know, sourcing and looking into different and ended up starting, you know, two companies and getting involved with third, um, two of them with uh, Wharton classmates and one with a Hopkins, you know, collaborator. Um, so it really was a surprise. And the sequence was essentially I was sort of preparing myself for this, these outside things, which I just found interesting and, uh, and meaningful. I, you know, my hope is to make a positive dent in the world, you know, and then at Hopkins, my chair really pushed me to apply for this position to head up this ambulatory surgery effort. And, and I was pretty resistant, but once I, I finally did it and it was really surprising to me how much I enjoyed actually that um, sort of creating this new model. We opened a new surgery center. We tried to move 26,000 cases out of Hopkins Hospital into the ASC. I had to work with every single department chair and hire a new team. And, and I found, um, I thought I would not enjoy all the HR putting out fire stuff like you know, as the medical director, if there's someone misbehaving in the OR. But I found that it, I actually enjoyed it because it was a chance to sort of try to coach and help people. And, you know, you touched on some, there's so many, 
you know, I worry about the state of our providers in healthcare and, and specifically surgeons. I think if I think if we're in a stage now where if the answer to every single year having these headwinds of higher costs and lower reimbursement rates and you know it's obviously accelerated now with the pandemic, but if the answer is always to do more with less, it's not it's not a good long term strategy. You know, we're going to have to innovate our way out of some of the challenges we're facing in healthcare. And, I think that little snippet of running this program at, at for the ASCs at Hopkins gave me the sense of, gosh, you know, maybe I'd never thought of being a chair ever. Like it just didn't appeal to me. But then I thought, gosh, you know, maybe I can, you know, uh, be an advocate for the people I, who I think need an advocate, not only our patients, but frankly, our docs, you know, who, you know, I think clearly don't always feel appreciated in, in big health systems. And I think it's because they're not fully appreciated enough. Um, yeah. I mean, um, you know, running a center like you ran, being able to understand a, you know, property in the balance sheet um, at a different level. I mean, it's no longer sufficient that a chair of a program doesn't understand how to read a balance sheet. Right. I do agree. I mean, because it's so difficult. Some some chairs delegate a lot and and that can work, I think, but, I would just say in my case, the insights I learned um, through the formal training, but then also s- struggling through starting a couple of companies. And one's a healthcare company, you know, with a practice and a bunch, you know, pretty big team in California. And I think that on the job learning about really running, but that's what you do, right? So I think, you know, um, people who run a thriving private practice have a real world skill set that is in part, at least transferable to positions like I'm in now, you know, I, yeah, I mean, look, leadership, sure. leadership, I mean, an integrity, you know, personal integrity is personal integrity and people don't follow those they don't trust. And, you know, all of those having the difficult, I would say the hardest part of my job is holding people, having, you know, being able to hold, have those conversations and hold people accountable in a very respectful way. So they know you care about them. And and that is not easy. And I and it, it gets brushed under the carpet. And I see even in academics too. I mean, I see a lot of institutions or some institutions where um, you know, leadership is really just a title and um there's politics and all the other nonsense. Um, but as you know, from the public for the private sector, um, that's not gonna make that's not you're not gonna see a profit and you're gonna go belly up. And so right. Oh, I agree. And and you know, people who you know, I, I've always lived uh, with a foot to some degree in both camps. You know, I had a part of my practice in a private group in Maryland for my whole time at Hopkins and at my private ventures. I, I have, you know, great respect for the skills that it takes to be very successful over a sustained period of time running a private practice. And um, as I have great success for academic leaders who can drive sustained success and grow programs, um, and we all know but, who they are. They're, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's way cool. Yeah. But, and but, it's interesting because, you know, your programs that go through, you know, all of a sudden this is a great program. I'll give an example. When I, uh, you know, I left, left medical school and was looking at residency. Buffalo is the last program on the list, which is where I went to medical school. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Dave Sherris has done with that program. It's incredible. And that's just leadership. 100%. Yeah. You know, and just totally turned that program around. It was so fragmented. The otologists wouldn't talk to the head and neck guys and people down at Children's Hospital wouldn't speak with, you know, and there was all this infighting. 
So you can make a huge impact. Um, tell me about the 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 ophthalmology. Um, I don't want to refer to it as a roll up, but uh, the private equity thing you're working on or we're working on, and how that's how that's going. It's going uh, pretty good. Uh, we, um, you know, I had this experience over by that point, 10 or so years of our own residents at Hopkins, those who didn't choose academics going into private practice. And the, the choices have progressively become somewhat more constrained. You know, people tend sure. to go to Kaiser's, big managed healthcare systems, um, or into academics. And the, this people hang in a shingle, a little different for facial plastics for sure. But for a lot of surgical specialists, it's pretty daunting to go into private practice. And a lot of the current generation doesn't want to. There's loads of data supporting that. You know, a lot of the current sort of grads like the idea of an employed model and having that flexibility, not taking on that risk and that debt. So the hypothesis of a buddy of mine at Wharton and I came up with was, well, maybe we can build a, a, a cool practice in some uh, medical specialty that can really be great for the providers. We take all their headaches, but they still have the flexibility. So it's sort of the best of both worlds for a Kaiser academic versus private practice. So we ended up settling on ophthalmology because we felt like from a business perspective, it made the most sense. They had a, very little consolidation at the time. Uh, and we looked at them. Easier to do a plug and play kind of thing. You know, you're not, you know, you know, key, key, it, it doesn't work well with the big egos, right? Exactly. Exactly. So some specialties you have to deal with the egos a little more. Everybody wants to be king. And it's also just some of the demographics. So ophthalmology is under-resourced and with the aging population, the needs are going to be supply demand is very much in favor of the practices for the next decade or so. Um, they tend to have diversified uh, income streams that you can tweak a little bit with selling optical sales and cosmetics and There's all that stuff. upgraded lenses for cataracts. So it just was an interesting business model. And, and uh, so anyhow, we vetted, you know, a couple hundred uh, uh, practices and ended up purchasing a practice in San Jose, California, which is a amazing practice run by this phenomenal guy that uh, is one of my heroes. He's, he's 83 now, he's 79, 78 when we bought the practice. He still sees 30, 40 patients a day, he's sharp as hell. And he's just some guy, a guy that I've learned so much from. And our, and our hope is to, to help his practice, which was opened in 1946 by his predecessors, one of the first practices in, in all of California. Loads of famous people have been there. And our goal is, can we help all those people in that practice? And the docs thrive in the new world, and and we're trying to make it happen, and it's been going pretty good. The the timing with the pandemic, Ed, was not no, great. I, I will say that. So we're 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 actually stable now. We've got uh, five docs and twenty five employees, and we're we're doing okay, and we're looking to grow. But it was a rough couple of years with the pandemic, very rough, as many people experienced. I mean, you're thinking to, you know, build a platform and then, and a prototype and just basically try to duplicate that. And, you know, that was the original idea and really have a big play into ASCs, which um, Northern California, where our practices is pretty under supplied with ASCs actually. So our, our long-term plan was exactly that to collapse, to combine with multiple practices and grow to enough scale that we can exert leverage on payers um, and, and that it could grow to maybe a larger platform on the West Coast, which is still pretty underpenetrated for consolidation ophthalmology, surprisingly, in Northern California. Um, but now, you know, um, we'll, we'll see. You know, I, I didn't anticipate my life taking this shift, you know, to a new big gig. And, and right now I just want to, you know, keep everybody in that practice doing well and provide for their families, actually. So I don't know that we have any plans now. Yeah, it's interesting. My uh, 
our, our oldest is, a, is an ophthalmologist. And when she decided to go down that road, um, I, I was, you know, it was like, that's interesting, but, but, but I see the wisdom because they're going to be one of the last few that continue to maintain their autonomy. Um, and, uh, she goes to work at eight o'clock, not, you know, <laughs> it's, an amazing. <laughs> it's a cataract did, did you ever watch cataract surgery? No, you know, I've never, ever watched mm -hmm. it. Thought about it. Oh my gosh. It's amazing. Like, you know, you wonder like what I always think, like if I rotate through orthopedic surgery, maybe I'd have been an orthopedic surgeon and I never would have thought, um, you know, ophthalmologist, but cataract surgery is just amazing. Um, so I can see how it becomes addictive to a lot of people. I'll bet your daughter loves cataract surgery. Most people yeah, does. It's interesting because, uh, you know, it's funny, you never quite imagine your kids are going to be like, you know, but I, I went to see her as a patient about three months ago and I came home. I said to my wife, I said, man, she's good. She cut her shit together. Boom, 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 boom. You know, I was like, knows what she's doing. And so, um, is she still, a resident? Is she still a resident? No, she's, she's, uh, she's an attending and, um, oh. She's she's been in practice now for about seven or eight months. Oh, well, uh, no, wait a minute. Oh my gosh, yeah, yeah. She started in uh, July first, and her husband is doing Phil Miller's fellowship, so he's joining us. So I'm pretty excited about that. You couldn't convince you to do oculoplastics, huh? Yeah, well, I I tried a little bit, but she wasn't. They have a they have a son now, and she wasn't willing to do a two year, you know, yeah. stint somewhere. And so anyway, that's a I don't it's not, I don't talk about. Yeah, you know, yeah, no maybe it was it anyway. So ophthalmology is a really cool specialty. How did you? So what happened when you know you got this call from Cleveland Clinic, or how did that? How did that all happen? So um, someone uh, put my name into the hat, and and I had never responded to any chair invitations. I, I had you know a small number of the years, um, but I just never thought. I love my practice for one thing. I had such a great practice in Baltimore, like. I did probably 150 rhinoplasties, maybe 30 or so facelifts, but also, you know, 50 or 60 reanimation cases, 200 Mohs cases. I ran the cleft team. Like I just had, for me, a perfect practice. It was super yeah. busy. Like I had no reason to leave. I had great teammates. And my oh, it was also home at that point. What's that? It was also home at that point, right? Oh, we renovated our dream home. We actually built that brand new ASC with a beautiful aesthetic facial plastic space just underneath it. And I was the medical director of both. So, so it's kind of like it's great setup. And then, uh, and the reason why when Cleveland Clinic called, I, I had always been fascinated by Cleveland Clinic specifically. My dad had his heart surgery there at my suggestion, even though he lived in California. And I was just kind of amazed at like how well they took care of patients. And, and we had two fellows in facial plastics in our Hopkins fellowship program who came from Cleveland Clinic. And Ed, they were incredible surgeons on day one. And I was just like, how the hell did they do that there? So I was always sort of fascinated. So I looked thinking, well, I'll just look, you know. And, and But the more I learned about sort of the culture at Cleveland Clinic, how they, it's very ambitious. Our CEO is just really wants to really make a big dent in the world. And, and the team there was pretty amazing. Their facial plastics, especially Mike Fritz, who you may know is just amazing microsurgeon. Just they're doing so many cool things that, you know, I just, I just got excited to maybe have a big life change, you know, and it was a very difficult decision. I'm sure I mean, it was. I agonized it and over it and yeah. four kids, right? So how old are your kids now? Four kids. Uh, at, so now they're 14, 13, 11, and seven. And so they were, you know, 11, 10, 
five and four when we were talking about it and we ended up moving two years ago and yeah, 11 and 10, it gets you know, it gets right it's, it's harder the little ones not it's not so much but the older kids and it's hard to pick them up just pick them up and move them. the first year my oldest was sixth grade here in in ohio and that was a rough year for him and i really stressed me out that maybe i made a bad decision uh thankfully they're all really happy now but um but it was a big hard decision hard decision for sure yeah yeah, I, I I was actually talking to talking to um, our folks in the OR about you this morning, and I said, you know, one thing I always admired is you were you were always always a family man too. I always, you know, I always, I mean, that's obvious, but but not everyone is, and I, you know, you've obviously got your priorities straight, and I'm sure well, that's that, what your listeners can know that over the years, like when I run into Ed, like you know, that's what I end up often asking you about. It's like balancing family stuff, and I'm fascinated by how people think about that because. You know what I think a lot about when I'm on my deathbed, what am I going to think about for whatever reason? It's something I tend to do. And, and I know for a fact, I'm not going to think of, about my job for a second. It, I'm, in fact, I'm not, I told my wife, I'm not sure I'm going to think about you, babe, but I'm going to think about our four kids. It's going to be Kellen, Gabrielle, Jameson, Charlotte. And that's, that's it. You well, know, when like, you're, when your kids are, so our youngest now is 20, but 19, um, yeah, 20. And what, you think about when they're younger is you're worried about being there for them. I remember that. Uh, always worried about making sure you know sure you sure you were there for your kids. Um, and I have I've had uh, I think three Mormon fellows now, and I learned from them. So I got to give credit where the credits due, you know. But the LDS guys always used to say, you know, no no uh, no success is at home at work is worth you know justifies failure at home and. I, I I preach that to you know the, the fellows that we have because it is so easy to get off balance and i see so many of our really good friends who just miss that um and it's not easy but i i always made it i always made it to my kids games i never missed dinner and you know those things and it's not easy because it's a lot easier to just just you know stay on and um I wish i could say the same what you just said i've missed a lot but i i try not to that's for sure yeah well probably have a little less control now uh you know just because you have everything you have going on you know what advice would you give to to you know young because i mean young facial plastic surgeon somebody who who's wants to go down a career of academics uh what advice would you give to someone thinking about that because there are a lot of people there's back and forth do i want to do academics do i not it's a big yeah yeah to me you know um i'm I'm glad I seek advice, but I'm glad I often don't take it um, because I would say people really should craft their own pathway. You know, when I you know, interviewed for the job at Hopkins, I think they had an idea of what the position should be, but I had a different idea. Um, and when I verbalized what I had envisioned, like, yeah, I want to build a cleft lip and palate program and I want to build an aesthetic program at Hopkins at an offsite location. And, and we're going to do microvascular as well. You know, honestly, a lot of people, you know, I realized I should not say it out loud because people told me, you know, it was foolish. You're nuts. Everybody told me that. So I realized, okay, I don't, don't tell people what I'm thinking of. And, uh, but to me, like, why can't you, why can't you, craft a pathway, a career, a, a practice in academics like you love and maybe get the best of all worlds. And that really has been my experience. It, it, you know, you gotta be super persistent um, and patient, but 
you know, I could go, I could have gone into private practice too. And if I did, I would have the same advice. Like you don't have to copy anyone else, like pursue the things. Dave Kim, who, you know, gave me some great advice once and he got it from a Harvard professor and it really shifted how I made decisions about how to allocate my time. And it basically said, listen there, you can think of everything you focus on in a couple of domains. One is if it's pleasurable or unpleasurable, and if it's uh, related to the future or the present. So in other words, um, you can either have present benefit and future detriment or present detriment and future benefit, you know, and it's, it's this grid, right? So like if you're studying all the time, you're doing it, even though it sucks now, it's present detriment, you're doing it to create a future benefit, right? Whereas if I go and party every night, I drink too much, it feels good in the moment, present benefit, but it has future detriment. Tomorrow I'm going to regret it. And the framework that this Harvard professor says is, you know, the sweet spot is spend as much time doing things that have both present and future benefits that you enjoy in the moment and serve some sort of higher purpose that's meaningful to you, not to anybody else. And when I heard that, I, you know, I stopped saying yes to a lot of the things as a young faculty member, I felt like I had to do because that's the way other people do it. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to do what I enjoy and I find meaningful and I'll put my all into it. And that's what I encourage young people the most when I do graduation talks and things like that. Just find out what you love. It's such a cliche, but, but really stick to it. Like do what you find enjoyable and meaningful and don't feel that you have to follow anybody else's path. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I couldn't say it better. I, what I, around 2004 or five, I started really feeling a little burned out. And what I did was say, okay, I made a list and, and I said, what things do I not like to do? And some of them things you felt obligated. You're on a board at a college or something. And I just, I, I got a bunch of things off my plate and tried to stay in the blue part of my flame. And then I actually eventually brought a couple of those back, but, but it you really felt in control too, right? Like, did it feel good? Oh, it felt great. And, uh, and so one of the things I, I have a couple of things that I live by one is that I try not to do things that are not in the blue part of my flame. Um, and if there's something that somebody else can do 80% as well as I can do it, it's time to hand it off. You're mm -hmm. never going to go to another level um, by just doing the same thing, thing for whatever reason, whether it's financial or, or, you know, because you feel obligated to do that. Um, but they're, you know, they're, they're tough decisions early on because you have a hard time saying, you know, saying no. You know, why do you think there, there are a lot of people that do struggle? I mean, you've had an amazing career. There are a lot of people that do struggle in, in academics. Why do you think that is? Uh, you know, I have my thoughts. Oh, I'd be curious to hear yours. Um, so the professed reason is consistent. You know, what is expressed typically is the institution, the enterprise, my department chair won't support me. Um, that is what I usually hear. Mm. And I don't discount that that's a very important factor. At the same time, when I look at the people who do, and there are a, a number, you look at Sam Most, you look at Dean Toriumi for all those years, you look at Jonathan Sykes for many years, you look at, you know, a lot of people at Hopkins now, and like there are programs where people do seem to thrive. And, you know, my, what I would notice in question is, well, what's, is it the, the um, organization they're in and their environment, or is it the person? Uh, and I, I think it's both. But for certain personality types, I like their chances in any environment. I, I like their chances. 
of being successful. So what what's your thought? No, I, I, I kind of think along the same lines. I, I mean, if you go to, so usually I, I usually, when I'm mentoring someone, I talk to them, talk to them about, you know, what's a chair? Cause you got to understand chairs are going to come and go to what are the chair? What are the politics? You know, is it a division and, you know, are you able to do, you know, X, Y, and Z thing as far as, you know, whether it's having private clinics somewhere, but probably the most important thing. And I told this to Steve Smith, who did very well when he went up to Ohio State. Um, for sure. I said, Steve, put your head down and work your ass off for a year and don't ask for a damn thing. And when you start banging some numbers and RVUs, you're going to get somebody's attention. And then now's the time to say, you know, I could use an imager. But uh, it's a, you know, chicken egg thing. A lot of times you do hear people because you can, a Taha ship landers on an, an amazing job. And, and, and so I do believe that it can be done. Yeah. But um, you know, Taha, he was our fellow and I would have predicted that. Well, this guy, he's, he's growth mindset. He's creative. He's determined. He has high emotional intelligence. He's going to figure out a way, right? In my case, I was super lucky too, because I had great supportive chairs, you know? And so, um, you know, it's definitely luck involved too. Um, I just tend to default to sort of this internal locus control notion. I, I think in general, um, I think people who believe that they create the story of their lives and they don't tend to blame their circumstances tend to be quite a bit more successful than those who focus outwardly on their circumstances to, you know, dictate how they view their, their lot. And I think the former group who has an internal locus of control tends to outperform those who have an external one. Yeah, I mean, there's, you, uh, it's, it, yeah, it's hard when you're, you know, when you, it's a grind, but if you put in the time and you really bust, bust it, it's, it's, it's hard not to get noticed. Yeah, um, you know, Kofi Bohane, like, you know, Kofi Bohane, I'm sure. Yeah. 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 Listen, you stick Kofi anywhere. He's going to succeed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't care who his chair is or what is it. He's going to build an incredible, like, and there, there are a lot of people like that out there. And, um, so it's, it's a combination. But. I, I encourage, I actually encourage a lot of my fellows, if they are open-minded, to really consider at least five years in academics, just because I think it gives them a great foundation. I, I'm not uncomfortable, you know, doing anything I do, whether it's taking rib cartilage in the surgery center. And the first many times they did it years ago, they were like, because all the work I did at, you know, at the university and the trauma and all the stuff that you, the crazy stuff that you do, and it's going to give you confidence and maybe a checkbook to checkbook to go, you know, but I, it's disappointing when I see people go out and just chase Botox and fillers and things to get. And then all of a sudden one day they wake up and they lose their surgical skills because we see a lot of that. And, and uh, they're so worried about what's on TikTok and how they're being presented um, that they lost, they, they're no longer surgeons. And, I yeah. say this often, but it's a little discouraging to me when all of a sudden these people you and I know that have been out a year and now that you see world renowned Beverly Hills, you know, it's like, really? I mean, yeah. what did you really accomplish? Uh, <laughs> you know, on the start on TikTok, man, that is a scourge. TikTok is a god dang scourge in my mind, but I won't, I won't go off on the tangent. Young kids got to deal with that stuff today. What would you, you know? If you had to to wind back, I mean, what would you tell the younger younger version of uh, Dr. Dr. Patrick Byrne? You know, any regrets, things that you would have done over? 
Yeah, lots of tactical errors, you know, like I was, you know, overconfident and put a little, maybe probably too pushy and not patient enough at certain things. And I worried so much about building, especially aesthetics, you know, you worry about building that practice. And, you know, I was just giving seminars and pushing on the market in Baltimore. And, and in retrospect, like that's just a simple suggestion. Like now I tell people who are really ambitious and want to build their practice fast that all those things matter. But in the end, if, if you just do good work. I'm not sure all that effort really was what created a, a good practice for me. I think it's just doing a really good job one patient at a time and giving them a great experience. And even without all the other stuff, you're probably going to do at least a pretty good practice. I think I would have relaxed a little more early in my life. And, um, and then it took me a long time, I think, to, you mentioned at the start here tonight, uh, um, to kind of appreciate just how important it is to be others focused. And, um, you know, the degree to which, I can set aside my own ego and concerns. And, you know, frankly, that, that was a process for me for sure. It still is. Um, the, the, the more fulfilling life is when I focus, that's one great thing I like about being a chair for anyone listening who might see a surprising career pathway. You know, my job explicitly now is all about others and, and it's liberating. And uh, I think early on, you know, I, I definitely made so many mistakes where I was so concerned about my practice and my world and how do I build it and, that, you know, I, I, I think I lost sight of a bigger picture sometimes. Sure. I would agree with you completely. I think that, um, I look back at the seminars and all those things that were just, I felt dirty. I hated doing all that stuff, but you did it anyway. <laughs> and maybe if I would have relaxed a little bit more, but what, what I really learned probably, you know, 15, 16 years ago was it's it's not about and a lot of this is all Jim Collins work, but, you know, it's 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 not a it's not about me. And and I think it's it's hard because we go through this training where we learn to rely on ourselves. We are so independent working in the emergency rooms or whatever you're doing and dealing with no help. And, yeah. and what what has made my job more fun now is building a team and understanding it's all about the team and, you know, let them take credit and um and those sorts of things, but I, and helping other people. And I never, I didn't realize who, you know, it's like the old, the old uh, picture or the old thing you see um, print on, on one of these t-shirts that says, you know, I'm going to, the beatings will continue until the morale uh, improves. And I realized the morale problem wasn't them. It was me. And I say that, and I'm not saying like, it, it wasn't like directly, it was, it was uh, my ignorance and, and, you know, Part of it is just slowing down and enjoying the moment and, and letting people know you, you know, appreciate or care about them and that sort of thing and making a difference in their lives. Um, I love if, it. Yeah. So what, um, what's your biggest, like right now, what is your biggest, what's the thing that keeps you up at night? What is your biggest worry in this position other than how you're going to do it all? Um, I, I think it's, it's nothing specific yet. Like, I think it's the uncertainty of how can we contribute to a really healthy culture. Uh, so uh, I just saw that, you know, it's a 709 surgeons, I guess, that are now in this group across all the different sites. And, crazy. and if I could, you know, I would, like my dream is five years from now, 10 years from now, you know, in a perfect world, every one of those, and hopefully it's way more by then because we're growing. Uh, feels that they're cared for, that they're cherished, that they're cherished. Like I would love if 
surgeons and all providers, all healthcare, you know, get health you know, caregivers, but knew that their institution has their back and really cherishes them. That I think in the end, like to me, that would be success. Uh, and but I don't know how to do that. Actually, you know, so I feel like you know we're going to try to figure it out. Um, but in my own institute over the past two two years, that's what I hope for. I hope that everybody knows. Listen, we really, really care about you and the work you do because it really matters. And um, I think a lot of I think a lot of academic institutions fail there because uh, they view the the surgeons, doctors as kind of indispensable. We'll plug them in, and I've seen it in our own. Yes. You know, I don't in our own little small institution where they could they could care less if you leave because um, and yet you look at what an amazing base of sculptors and this guy is and you're like no one's going to sit him down and say what you know how can you know obviously if he's unreasonable but but what can we do to keep you to stay um, but a lot of it's just uh, not communicating yeah and it's it is tough economically especially now I mean it's it's a tricky combination of factors right now with inflation and the workforce shortages and um you know so it, it it's it's complicated right now yeah, medicine's had a medicine's had a really really i i, I mean this this last 2022 um you know between the shortages I, I, you know i talked to my accountant the other day and you know our, our gross is up our margins are squeezed you know between inflation and salaries and and I, I said to him, it's just it was a really bizarre year that way. Um, it's surprising to I think everybody, everybody, you know, everybody. What so? What do you see for for medicine, and what do you see for? What are your predictions for aesthetic medicine? Uh, well, aesthetic medicine, I think, will you know, it's one reason we're making an investment at Cleveland Clinic. Um, I yeah. I think it will remain a. Um, growth area that's decoupled from a lot of these economic pressures, other than the staffing costs, like you said, right? Um, which that's probably not going away, you know, quickly. It's not going away anytime short, anytime soon. It's not going away. Yep. So the advantage, of course, is that in aesthetics we we have a bit of a luxury good dynamic. So and we're able to set prices. You know, that's that's a key difference for sure. Um, with everything else, you know, we we can't set prices. The insurance companies do and. Right. You know, that's really unfortunate. It's just a bit of a challenge to overcome. So I, I feel like aesthetics is, it's one reason why, you know, I think it's a, it's smart because uh, I think we can do a good job at Cleveland Clinic at it. We've got some really great providers. Um, but I also th think it's smart to expand our, you know, diversify our portfolio a little bit into that space with a real commitment. Um, because on, on the larger scale, you know, we, we're going to have to innovate our way forward. Um, we can't, provide at least academic centers where there's a, a higher cost structure, we can't provide equivalent or better care with the same cost structure we have now because we're going to keep getting squeezed. And so we're going to require real innovation and you can, you know, it, it can be, on, it's largely on the expense side, but I think there's opportunity on, on the volume and yield side as well on the, on the top line, but um, it's going to require innovation for us to um, deliver care in a more efficient manner. Without degree, some of the innovation I, I feel is going to be really focusing on quality because there is, I mean, the non-surgical is growing, right? It's going at almost twice the rate of the surgical, and yet because of uh, you know you blame the Affordable Care Act, I, I think it's a disaster, but it's put so much pressure on functional traditional medicine 
that you're seeing people exit that to be what you and I are doing. And, and so the only way, the good news is for our younger people that are really well-trained is um, the barrier to entry for what you do and do well is high and mm -hmm. not to uh, commoditize what you do by just chasing fillers and Botox, even though, you know, we do a lot of that. It's just that I were, but it's so easy to get, and I think that's where things get really, really get blurred. And um, where our opportunity is, is to really focus on quality, and especially at a place like the Cleveland Clinic, you know? Well, I think I lost Dr. Byrne here.